Welcome, welcome everyone. This is so great to see everyone. Hello and welcome to Water Crises on the Blue Planet. What Water's Past tells us about humanity's future, which is brought to you by the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University and the magazine Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective. It's really a pleasure to be with everyone today. My name is Bart Elmore. I'm an associate professor of environmental history and a core faculty member of the Sustainability Institute here at Ohio State. And I'll be your host and moderator today as we talk about these important issues surrounding water. Welcome to everyone and thank you so much for joining. Today, we are really privileged to welcome Dr. Nicholas Breifogel, who will explore the historical roots of today's global water crises and the ways in which humanity's relationship with water has changed over time. Across human history and throughout this very diverse planet, water has defined every aspect of human life, from the molecular, biological, and ecological to the cultural, religious, economic, and political. Water stands at the foundation of most of what we do as humans. At the same time, water resources, the need for clean and accessible water supplies for drinking, agriculture, and power production will likely represent one of the most complicated dilemmas of the 21st century. So we're gonna dive into this big and comprehensive topic, but let's take a moment to get to know our wonderful speaker for the day. Nick Breifogel is an associate professor of history and the director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching at Ohio State. He is a specialist in the history of Russia, the Soviet Union, and in global environmental and water history as well. He is the author, editor of multiple books, including Eurasian Environments, Readings in Water History, and Hydraulic Societies, which are all relevant to today's discussion. He's currently completing the books uh, by call, The Great Lake and Its People, and, and this is pretty profound here, Water, A Human History. Uh, this is gonna be a big opus piece. Since 2007, Bry Vogel has worked as co-editor of the online magazine podcast video channel, Origins, Current Events and Historical Perspective, and most recently, A Picturing Black History. And I should note also that he has been a leading figure in developing the environmental history program here at Ohio State. So with that introduction, let me mention the plan for today. Professor Breifogel will begin with a presentation on the historical roots of today's water difficulties. Then he will take your questions and we will open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. And then I'll read your questions uh, to Nick as we move along. We'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. We've received several questions in advance. Um, so bear with us as we try and get to as many of your comments and questions as we can. Also, we'd like to acknowledge that the land the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, uh, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, the Wyandotte, the Ojibwe and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. We want to honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical context that have and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of the land. Now, let me pass you over to Professor Nick Breifogel who will take us on an exploration of water crises on the blue planet, what water's past tells us about humanity's future. Over to you, Professor Breifogel. Thank you so much uh, for that introduction and welcome everyone. I'm delighted that you've all uh, uh, joined us uh, here today. Hopefully you can all sort of uh, see the screen that I got up. Uh, first, a very happy uh, World Water Day to everyone. Uh, March 22nd is the day we, uh, we remember just how important uh, water is uh, to us. And so 
I wanted to talk a little bit today about uh, the kind of human relationship with water over time and what it teaches us um, about the um, uh, uh, the current dilemmas that we're often facing uh, when it comes to water. Um, I want to begin by asking, uh, sort of raising a question that I actually ask of my students a fair amount, which is, what is what is your relationship uh, to water? Uh, and it's an amazing thing because th this is a question that is often very hard for students to under uh, to find an answer to, in the sense that for most people, particularly in the United States, they don't think a lot uh, about water around them. Water comes out of a tap. Uh, it's there whenever they need it. Uh, when I ask them, what's your relationship to water? They say, well, I drink my eight glasses a day. I use it for bathing. Um, I... Uh, uh, I use it for swimming, maybe I go wakeboarding, you know, so so drinking, bathing, leisure types of activities are usually the list uh, that I get. And it uh, and it's an interesting thing because it reflects the ways in which water has become for many of us something that we don't even think about. Uh, it's just part of our daily lives. It's part of the background uh, of our existence, and we don't think a lot uh, about it. Uh, and yet, uh, water is everything. Uh, in human life. I mean, without the molecule H2O, life as we understand it simply wouldn't exist. And uh, and water is at the has been and is uh, at the core of just about everything that we uh, we do uh, as people: in irrigation, and agriculture, and waste and sanitation, in drinking and disease, and floods and droughts, in religious beliefs and practices, in fishing and aquaculture, and travel and discovery, scientific study, and water pollution and conservation. You know, dam building, boundaries and borders, wars and diplomacy. I mean, the list can go on. I mean, I race through that, but almost every aspect of uh, of our existence is one that is defined uh, by uh, by uh, by water. Uh, and so, it's an interesting moment when you ask people, "Well, so what's your relationship to water?" and they can't quite think of it, even though uh, water is so crucial uh, to everything uh, that we do. So there's a strange way today in which, at least, for example, in the United States uh, and, and uh, other very well-off countries, uh, our relationship to water is something that we don't think about and is in some ways in the background, just part of, kind of our daily existence. Um, at the same time, we live in a moment where, at least in my newsfeed, uh, we now all get our curated news feeds by some kind of algorithm and this sort of thing, but at least in my newsfeed, there's a lot of information about uh, news where it seems like our relationship to water as humans has, has fallen out of balance uh, in one form uh, or other. Uh, that we have, we read one day about you know, terrible floods, uh, which are taking down uh, societies. And, and in other days, we read about drought, uh, where so we have too much water some places, some days, we have too little water in other places and other days. Uh, and uh, we hear a great deal about water uh, pollution uh, and whether it's chemicals coming into the water, uh, harmful algal blooms, uh, you know, coming from uh, nutrients from, uh, from farming in particular, uh, you know, plastic waste, and here you can see it in its bottle form, but more and more we see water pollution in the form of sort of nanoparticles, things we can't see uh, that, uh, that are in our water. Uh, and you know, then impact uh, on uh, on aquatic life, such as the bleaching of coral, um, and and this sort of thing. So that we have this sort of strange situation where, on the one hand, we almost don't notice our relationship with water, and on the other hand, we have all of these examples of a world a little bit out of balance when it comes to the human relationship with water uh, that are around us today. And what I want to do uh, with uh, with all with all of you today is to kind of think about. The sort of question of well, how did we get here? How do we get to this point where water is both uh, an afterthought and uh, something at the very forefront of a series of problems that we're uh, we're confronting? Uh, and what, if anything, can we learn from the past about the human relationship to water uh, as we're thinking about uh, how to resolve or to confront uh, the kinds of issues that we face at, uh, at the moment? Um, and the the question of well what can we learn from the past well the answer is a lot uh, and what I mean by that is that uh, the past is this remarkable data set of information about the human relationship to water uh, 
humans and water have been together from the very beginning. So from the very first moment of our species, the question of the human water relationship has been uh, a central part of what it meant to be human. So in that sense, uh, for the last 200, well, maybe even 300,000 years, depending on uh, where you date the beginning of, uh, of our species, the human water relationship has been at the very core uh, of everything we've done. And humans have had a lot of opportunities to think about uh, how to set up that relationship uh, and how to ensure that they have the water uh, that they need. Um, at the same time, the past is so often talking to us. And, and I don't mean sort of indirectly, but often really quite uh, directly. Uh, up on your screen, you can see uh, what's, what, what's called a hunger stone. Uh, these are, this is a stone that, that's actually at the bottom on the bed of the Elbe River in Europe. Um, in 2018, uh, there was a very dry patch and uh, this stone then appeared from under the water as basically the water disappeared in the river. Uh, and one of the things you find on this uh, stone is a whole series of carvings and engravings uh, from other times in human history where the water has, uh, has dropped to expose um, this big rock. Uh, these stones go back, uh, uh, the engravings go back into the 15th century, uh, and they tell of years where, where water was insufficient. Uh, and there's one really remarkable kind of carving in it uh, uh, where, uh, you know, it's written in, you know, if you see me, weep. Uh, and um, uh, is a remarkable kind of thing to kind of see that, you know, here's a moment where the people from that time uh, there wasn't enough water, uh, they couldn't grow the crops they needed to grow, the result was massive famine and death. Uh, and you see this effort on the part of, uh, of our forebears, right, to reach out across generations, to warn us, to warn people who are not even born yet of the dire consequences of what happens when the water uh, disappeared. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, and you can see a kind of range of emotions that they have here, sadness, uh, fear, anger, resignation, um, and to the point of you know, bringing tears uh, to their eyes. And it's a reminder of this kind of shared uh, human experience uh, that we have uh, over the whole question of, uh, of water and across time and the way that humans speak to us uh, from the past. It's also worth noting that um, this isn't uh, this isn't something that just happened a long time ago, but in fact, humans today uh, are also speaking uh, to the future. Uh, this uh, this image that you see up here is a uh, uh, is from August uh, two thousand and nineteen. It's a, a group uh, in Iceland, uh, including the Prime Minister Katrin uh, Jakob's daughter, who held a funeral ceremony uh, for the um, the Okjukul. Uh, uh, glacier, which they they uh, shortened to OK, uh, and it, they had a funeral ce uh, ceremony for it and laid a plaque to memorialize the loss of this glacier. Uh, they did this because in 2014, uh, geologists had stripped the glacier of its of its status as a glacier uh, because basically it had entirely disappeared uh, by that point. Uh, and the plaque is this letter to the future, which reads. Um, OK is the first Icelandic glacier to lose its status as a glacier. In the next 200 years, all our glaciers are expected to follow the same path. This monument is to acknowledge that we know what is happening and what needs to be done. Only you will know if we did it. Uh, and so if our first stone was from the past to us, here we are as humans today speaking out uh, to the future uh, and uh, and marking important moments uh, in, our, in our relationship uh, with water so that the communications that we have across time about the human water question uh, are very real uh, and, uh, and ongoing. Uh, and, uh, and it's just such a reminder of the importance of water uh, in all its forms to all of us. So let's talk a little bit about what we can learn from the past. And, and the first thing I just want to highlight before we jump in is just to note uh, the, 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 the actual hydrological structures uh, and locations of water uh, on, uh, on our planet. Um, we often, I'm often asked, well, how on earth on the blue planet, which has so much water on it, could we ever be in a place where we have 
too little water or not enough or water uh, that we can't use. I mean, there's just so much water around us, right? Uh, and part of the answer to the question of, well, how can you have a water crisis on a blue planet uh, is, uh, this is this is seen in this chart here that of all the water on the planet, uh, only three percent of it uh, is fresh water, right? The other ninety-seven percent is uh, is salt water of some form, so not very good for human use. Um, of that three percent, then uh, most of that, ninety-nine percent of that that three percent, uh, is hard for us to access. Either it is deep underground in aquifers, uh, or it is uh, frozen solid in, in ice caps or glaciers, uh, and, uh, and so difficult. I mean, you can go chip off ice and, uh, and melt it down to be used, uh, but it's not certainly not coming out of your tap in that way. So of the 3% of all the water, only 1% of it is actually relatively uh, readily uh, accessible to humans. And of that 1% of 3%, uh, you see this kind of a breakup of things, where about 38% is in the soil, again, difficult for us to access, um, and uh, about 52% of the 1% of the 3% uh, in lakes uh, for us to, uh, uh, to use. So that uh, while we are a blue planet with a lot of water on it, um, the accessibility and the usability of, uh, or at least from an, uh, from an ease of use, an ease of accessibility perspective, uh, it's really hard for us uh, as humans to access uh, this kind of essential resource. That said, there's still lots of water on this planet. I mean, this 1% this, uh, this of the 3% that is down here, still a lot of water, more water than we needed if it all ended up in the, in the, in the same place at the same time. Plus, we have there's water underground and water in the ice caps. So it's not a sort of lack of water per se, uh, as we'll see, that is the, uh, the, the, the biggest problem we face. It's also just worth noting that water is a kind of magical uh, um, kind of molecule in the sense that it has all sorts of characteristics that are, uh, that are important uh, for us. Uh, it's, it's the only molecule on the planet that exists naturally in all three states, gas, liquid, and, uh, and solid, uh, and that's quite remarkable. Uh, it's also really interesting because its solid form is lighter than its and less dense than its uh, liquid form, which is why ice uh, uh, forms on the top of a lake. Uh, super important for any species who uh, who wanted to live uh, in a lake uh, that that it's at the top rather than at the bottom. Um, worth noting that uh, that water is uh, both cohesive, that it sticks well to itself, and adhesive, uh, that it bonds with other molecules as well, which is why water is almost is very rarely just simply water. It's not just H2O. It's often connected uh, with other things. And it's also worth highlighting that water is pretty heavy, uh, about 8.34 pounds per gallon. Uh, so it's not easy uh, to move. Uh, and if humans want to lug it with them, it's a problem. Um, so some of the basics of, uh, of our very cool magical molecule that is water. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the history. Uh, and I want to highlight three basic stages uh, of the human relationship to water uh, uh, that uh, give us a sort of sense of, of, the, of the changes over time uh, of our relationship to water and the ways in which, you know, how we got uh, to the world in which we live in uh, today. Um, it's worth noting that for most of human history, uh, you know, the first 200,000, 250,000 years, uh, humans uh, lived as uh, as in, as as, my, uh, as hunter gatherers who migrated uh, around the um, uh, around falling water wherever they needed uh, to find it. So if water disappeared in one place, uh, they would move uh, somewhere else. We don't really have any uh, evidence from this time of humans uh, sort of uh, putting water in jars or moving water in any sort of a way. As far as we can tell, basically humans moved to wherever the water was rather than moving the water uh, themselves. Uh, so we have this kind of migratory thing. And, and if you had a moment where there was too little or too much water, you simply moved somewhere else uh, where the amount of water was what you needed it to be. Um, it's also the case that all of the other animals that as humans, you might want to hunt and eat, 
they tended to move with the water as well, so that as you move from one spot of water uh, to the next, uh, you would move with uh, the animals that you might want to hunt. Many of the plants you might want to eat were growing in that water, so that you know, food and water and humans kind of connected uh, together in this way. We know that uh, humans have been fishing for quite some time. Uh, we have fish hooks, you know, here from uh, 23,000 years ago uh, from Japan, uh, so that humans were getting fish out of the water uh, at that point. Um, it's important to note that through this whole period, one of the things that has allowed humans to, 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 to survive and to thrive uh, is, in fact, uh, the ways in which water makes up most of our body and the ways in which we have a, a self-cooling system uh, through, uh, through sweat and the kind of evaporation of water on our bodies to cool ourselves. Um, humans are quite remarkable. There are lots of species that are faster than us, uh, stronger than us, but there are very few species that can match us in terms of persistence uh, and our ability to keep going. Uh, because we're able to cool ourselves. Most other species don't have the same kind of self-cooling system, so they can sprint for a while, but then they overheat and have to cool down. Uh, humans can keep going, keep going, keep going. So uh, our ability to hunt is one that, you know, our ability to hunt has been extraordinary because uh, of our ability to cool our own bodies uh, and to keep going, keep going. So our prey might run away from us, but as long as we can track it, we can keep going even after uh, the prey has to stop. Um, and so this was this was human life uh, for most of human history. Migration, uh, following water, always living close to water, moving when they couldn't, and using uh, this remarkable sweat system that we have uh, in order to uh, uh, to be able to get the food uh, that they uh, that they wanted uh, or needed. Um, we see a profound change in the human relationship to water uh, about 12,000 uh, years ago. Uh, and uh, this is the beginning of the world in which we, that we live in uh, today. There'll be a third stage I'll talk about beginning in about 1750, so very recently. Uh, but, you know, so most of human history is about migration and moving with water. Then we see a big change about 12,000 years ago where we start to see a shift towards uh, humans uh, living in, uh, in in kind of permanent settlements uh, and engaging in settled agriculture, where humans stay in one spot uh, and then grow the food they need in that spot uh, and uh, and then live in that way. So rather than going out to to, to hunt or to gather uh, solely for their food, they're now going to grow their own food uh, locally. Um, and this is a huge transformation uh, in uh, in human life. Uh, and in many respects, it, it it's this moment twelve thousand you know that begins about twelve thousand years ago. It takes a while to come into place. Uh, that really uh, sets out the kind of dilemmas that we're facing uh, today. Uh, and what I mean by this is that the move to settled agriculture creates a kind of disjuncture uh, between humans and water, in the sense that water is always in motion uh, on the ground, underground, in the air. It's always, for the most part, with very few exceptions moving somewhere. Uh, humans have now set themselves up beginning about 12,000 years ago in a settled kind of spot. Uh, and so suddenly water's moving, but humans aren't moving anymore. Uh, and so to be able to access the water that they need, humans have to figure out other types of, uh, of solutions. Uh, and and this, this then becomes, this raises the kind of four big issues that humans need, because humans need a specific amount of water uh, of a specific quality, so water you can use to grow crops or to drink or this sort of thing, at a specific place and at a specific time. Uh, and struggling to bring those four things together, quantity, quality, location, and timing, uh, has been the defining characteristics of human history uh, from, you know, from this point forward. Uh, and we still live in that. We're still working to ensure quantity, quality, uh, location, uh, and timing. Now, this may set up a kind of disjuncture for us and a set of pro problems that we need to, uh, to resolve, but it also uh, has brought, brought into existence the kind of uh, civilizations that we, we now understand uh, and the kind of beginnings of the kind of world as we understand it today. Uh, so based upon uh, this kind of new type of settled agriculture, we start to see the development of what are often known as the, the cradle civilizations, uh, these are 
uh, different kinds of communities that, that developed around uh, usually a large flooding river. Uh, they were they were irrigation based for agriculture, producing usually wheat, barley, uh, and millet. Uh, and so we have, uh, for example, in Egypt around the Nile, Mesopotamia around the Tigris Euphrates, uh, the uh, kind of South Asia around the Indus and Ganges, uh, and uh, the Yellow River and the Yangtze. And the development of, uh, of kind of Chinese uh, civilization. Uh, these are societies that start to take on characteristics as we understand them uh, today. Uh, these societies have to develop very complex social and political relations uh, to make sure that they can provide the water uh, that they need, whether it's building reservoirs, releasing water into irrigation systems uh, when they need it. Uh, and organizing labor to do all of that kind of work. Uh, we start to see the beginnings of what we might call urban uh, societies uh, and the development of uh, you know, the, the first examples of, uh, of writing, like the, uh, the Sumerian cuneiform uh, here, uh, artwork, uh, and uh, uh, such as you know, this, this statue from Egypt, uh, the beginnings of the first law codes now written down because they had the, the writing to do, uh, and uh, you know, such as Hammurabi's first uh, law code uh, from the Babylonian period of Mesopotamia, uh, which has lots of lines in it about water, because uh, the laws were thinking a lot about water at that time, taxation systems, all these sorts of things that uh, uh, that we associate with uh, with modern society today. Um, we also see uh, the development of uh, the first types of kind of uh, water provision and sanitation structures uh, that you know, are now such a, a core part of urban living uh, in the world that, uh, at least in the United States, uh, to the point that we've actually forgotten that they almost even exist because they're buried underground and we don't really see them. We flush and forget, uh, as they say. Uh, but the first civilization that we can see who really developed these kinds of structures uh, were the, the Harappan civilization uh, in, uh, on the Indus Valley. Um, and uh, you know now, you know four to five thousand years ago, uh, they uh, uh, developed a kind of well structure system. This is the first indications we have of, uh, uh, or the first archaeological remains, earliest archaeological remains that we have of this kind of circular uh, well structure. Uh, and uh, uh, we start to see this is a, an old uh, shower system here uh, on the kind of top left. Uh, we can see sanitation uh, troughs to kind of move human waste uh, away from people's homes. Uh, so we have water supply, we have cleaning areas, we have sanitation systems that are getting put into place here, uh, and they have what's known as the Great Bath. We don't know what this is, uh, what this was used for, but it was clearly for holding water. Uh, and then something happened here with that water. We don't know. Uh, the Harappan civilization uh, flourished for a long time and then disappeared. Uh, was only discovered several centuries later. Uh, they have uh, a written, they have writings, but uh, we have yet to crack the code of them, so we're not quite sure what these are all about. But we start to see the beginnings of these kinds of uh, these kinds of structures. We also see uh, over sort of the, the several thousand years between 12,000 and 1750, 12,000 BCE, and uh, and, uh, uh, or sorry, 12,000 years ago and, and 1750, uh, the development of a whole series of new types of machines which use the power of water uh, in order to, um, uh, uh, in order to, uh, uh, to do all sorts of jobs for us. Uh, so particularly water wheels that could be used to, uh, as in this case, uh, to power a blast furnace to be able to produce uh, uh, higher quality metal to be able to produce higher temperatures to produce uh, higher quality iron uh, or systems like this water wheels to crush stones for various purposes. Uh, we see the development of incredible infrastructure to be able to move water uh, from uh, uh, from one place uh, to another. Uh, this is one of the aqueducts of, uh, of the Roman Empire, uh, the Pont du Gard in, uh, uh, in Avignon in southern France. Uh, an amazing engineering to be able to move water solely through gravity uh, from one place uh, to another, uh, not too steep because if it's too steep, it erodes, uh, not too flat so that the water keeps moving. Uh, remarkable kind of infrastructure that gets built around water this way to bring water in uh, when people found that, for example, wells weren't enough to bring water uh, for a city now to bring it in from the outside. 
Um, oops, sorry. Uh, we also see uh, increasing efforts to try to, what, as the Dutch call land winning, that is to uh, separate out water from land uh, in wetland areas, uh, to create land uh, where there had been kind of marsh before uh, for agricultural purposes uh, and for living purposes. Uh, the, uh, if anybody looked at the lands where Holland is uh, at the moment, uh, they would hardly think to themselves that this was an auspicious place uh, to start building um, a society uh, in the sense that uh, about 25% of what's now the Netherlands is below sea level. Uh, without protection, about 65% would flood regularly. Uh, so to build a society in this area uh, required then building an elaborate protective dike and dam structures to keep the water out uh, and to think about new ways to try to move water uh, from, from one area to another if you wanted to dry land, how to move the water away. Uh, for the Dutch, they did this particularly through, uh, through wind power uh, so that to be able to lift water uh, against the force of gravity from lower to higher, uh, they use wind power uh, to make that happen uh, and create just the most remarkable civilization uh, in, uh, in the process. Now, we start to see uh, across the world uh, the ways in which these kinds of civilizations that build up over the course of these thousands of years, some of them thrive for you know, hundreds of years and then have uh, some kind of disappearance uh, or uh, or collapse. Uh, just to give one example of this uh, this kind of process, uh, one can look at the uh, the kind of southwest of the United of what's now the United States, uh, and look at territories of, uh, of the people, the Hohokam or the ancestral Pueblo, uh, who existed kind of in around the four corners of. Um, uh, of you know, sort of Utah, Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and then also in in Arizona itself, these were two you know, highly flourishing uh, kind of settled uh, societies. Uh, the Hohokam, in particular, irrigation based, incredibly elaborate and uh, uh, engineering uh, in that regard to bring water in. Uh, they built kind of remarkable uh, dwellings and uh, and uh, and towns and societies. This one, uh, for example, Mesa Verde. Uh, in um, uh, and uh, uh, with uh, sort of underneath these this uh, this rock uh, outcropping as kind of protection, uh, really remarkable and existed for several hundreds of years and then suddenly stopped. Uh, there's a sudden moment where the people in this area uh, disappear uh, and where you can see towards the end of their existence there that uh, that there was a fair amount of violence and fighting. Uh, as best we can tell from looking at climate records, uh, the disappearance of these societies almost uh, almost always tends to uh, coincide with moments of dryness uh, and extended kind of drought. Uh, and so uh, it's a reminder that water helps to build these kinds of civilizations. And then when the water stops uh, or drops to a certain level, uh, we see a kind of collapse of these civilizations. And it's pretty rapid uh, and often quite violent. Um, and it's perhaps not surprising, I don't know if any of you have seen this kind of map of the uh, of, of rainfall in the United States. Uh, the United States today is in many respects a, uh, a, a two-part country. There's the East, uh, where we see more, uh, on average, more than 20 inches of, uh, of rain a year coming down and where uh, one, can, one can conduct agriculture just based upon rainfall uh, you know, most years. And then there's the West where you have less than 20 uh, inches of rainfall on average a year, where it's really hard to have consistent agriculture based upon rainfall. And so if you're gonna have agriculture there, it has to be irrigation based. The societies I've just talked about are in this kind of zone where uh, it's, a, it's a pretty dry place uh, to be. Uh, and so perhaps not surprising that they were able to kind of engineer uh, a long kind of stretch for themselves and then uh, when water just simply became too in, uh, too uh, became insufficient, uh, then uh, the society can no longer hold uh, together. Now, the third stage uh, in uh, in kind of the human history with water is a really recent one. So we've had we've had most of human history hunter gatherer. We then have uh, about twelve thousand years, uh, which is 
this kind of settled agriculture period, the rise of kind of the, these historic civilizations uh, and the uh, uh, sometimes the fall of these civilizations as well, the development of new types of technologies, urban development, uh, laws, all of this kind of uh, this kind of thing. And then beginning at about 1750, uh, we see uh, humans coming into our, our current stage, which is a, a relatively new one and a really uh, quite remarkable one. Uh, and um, in the sense that uh, it's at, at this time where we start to unleash not just the power of water as it flows, you know, say through uh, water wheels, uh, but uh, through the power of steam. Uh, by initially merging uh, uh, the the, uh, the energy of fossil fuels and the burning of coal, uh, which could then turn water into steam, uh, and then utilizing the transition of water from steam to water to you know from gas to liquid and back and forth, uh, allowed us to produce uh, a whole series of of new types of machines. Uh, that could do all sorts of work for us. It's the beginning of the industrial transformation uh, that we are, uh, we're still living in. It also begins a time period where humans began to really think of themselves as able to conquer water, control water, solve the water problems, uh, that technology and kind of human ingenuity would fix everything. Uh, and this idea, which didn't exist uh, for, uh, for other human generations, really starts to take off uh, after 1750. Um, one of the things amazing about this time is just how rapid the population growth was uh, that coincides with this new use of, uh, of water uh, as part of the industrial change. Uh, you can sort of see uh, this is the kind of beginnings of settled agriculture, about 4 million people on the planet in total. Uh, and then we go from a horizontal growth line uh, to a vertical growth line really uh, quickly. So you know, we live in a very different type of world now uh, as a result of um, uh, of this new kind of use of water that we see uh, at this point. Um, just kind of quickly to kind of characterize some of the things that really are different about this new period in which we live. Uh, the first is our ability to grow a great deal more food than we ever have. Part of that has to do with technological ability to move water through pipes or other kinds of irrigation systems. Uh, the development of new types of technologies for watering crops. Uh, but a lot of it also has to do with accessing new water sources, and particularly water under the ground uh, in aquifers. Uh, and so the ability to pump uh, using steam technology initially uh, then has allowed us to bring water out from this previously inaccessible uh, areas, like the Great Artesian Basin in Australia, underneath Saudi Arabia, the Ogallala Aquifer uh, on the Great Plains of the United States, or the aquifers underneath, um, uh, underneath California. Uh, so we've been able to see a rapid increase in the amount of agriculture that we and food we're able to produce. We fundamentally transformed uh, rivers. Uh, we have redesigned them. You can sort of see this is an example of the Rhine River, uh, where natural rivers bend and flow and twist and turn and change direction and move in all sorts of different directions, have all sorts of oxbows and, and tributaries and are a mess, honestly. Uh, and over the course of the 19th and 20th century, humans across the planet have generally re-engineered these rivers much more to look like uh, canals. Uh, and you can sort of see the difference in these three pictures uh, here. Very few of us actually have ever seen a river in its natural state anymore. So great has been the transformation of rivers uh, in the process. Um, and you can see these, this painting versus this photograph here, uh, you know, this canal here with very smooth edges, good for transportation. Uh, and as opposed to this one with wetlands everywhere, uh, meandering uh, and this sort of thing. So we fundamentally redesigned all of our rivers um, we have impounded vast amounts of water uh, behind dams, um, both hydroelectric and not. Uh, and you know, here's the Hoover Dam, uh, and one of the first that began this process. You can see from this chart here the ways in which we have massive outpour, uh, uh, kind of outburst of uh, of dam construction after World War II, uh, to the point that not only have we redesigned rivers uh, to be basically like canals but we have now impounded most of the world's water uh, into uh, these massive reservoirs uh, that then provide 
water for irrigation, uh, for leisure activities, for hydroelectricity, uh, uh, and for a variety of other types of, uh, of purposes. So we have re redesigned the whole water system uh, on our planet, most of which has happened after the Second World War, so very recently. Uh, we've also, uh, and this is perhaps the most remarkable thing, is uh, made, made it possible in many parts of the world uh, for water to be safe to drink. Historically, uh, humans tended to stay away from drinking water because water tended to be a home for disease. Uh, and humans drank other sorts of things, fermented, boiled, uh, uh, or otherwise adulterated forms of, water, uh, of liquid. Uh, but beginning in the mid part of the 19th century, we see the beginnings of a process of installing new sanitation uh, systems, efforts to clean uh, water uh, so that uh, you can drink water out of the tap, or at least I can in my house. Uh, and uh, it's a remarkable transformation uh, and one that has divided the world between those who can do that, who have clean, safe water uh, from those uh, who haven't. And the last thing I would just add about this, the, the world in which we live in uh, today is that as part of our industrial transformation, uh, we have invented uh, new sorts of, um, uh, new sorts of, uh, of kind of pollutants. Water used to be dangerous because it had disease in it. Now water becomes something that we might be worried about drinking because it has other forms of pollutants, toxins, chemicals, uh, uh, other sorts of things, generally things that humans have created themselves as part of industrial change that is now making their way into our water uh, that affects then our ability to use the water to drink for agriculture uh, for all sorts of different types of, uh, of, uh, of purposes. Uh, so that as part of our recent industrial uh, era of water use, uh, we are in an interesting moment where we've solved a lot of problems through our industrial use uh, and new types of technologies. At the same time, we've also created new water problems uh, for ourselves, uh, and these are ones that we're going to have to face uh, moving forward. Um, so that's, uh, that is uh, the, uh, an overview of uh, the kind of reality uh, in which we um, uh, well, the reality which we live today and the ways in which we've come over time through these three stages of, uh, of kind of the human relationship uh, with water. Um, so with that, let me, uh, let me pass over for questions. Fabulous, Nick, what a great presentation. I'm gonna jump right in. We've got some questions from before we came on this webinar. The first was from someone who was interested in chemicals. It's a great segue to what you just said because you were talking about industrial pollution. Someone who's really worried about, you know, how do I protect myself from all these chemicals that are out in the environment now that are being pushed by, by big multinational firms, specifically uh, pesticides and herbicides being used on property around where this individual lives. And, um, you know, asking really the question is how do we fight back? What does history teach us about you know, um, being able to ensure that these pesticides and chemicals don't end up in our groundwater that go into our wells or, um, you know, in our municipal water supply? Well, I think that the answer to that question is, you know, will vary depending on where you are in the world. In our sort of, uh, uh, our democracy with our kind of, uh, uh, with our sort of economy, you know, part of the answer to that question is, uh, is, you know, please, one has to make choices about what one purchases, uh, because uh, we know that, I mean, ultimately, whatever we put uh, into our garbage, uh, you know, that goes into landfill, uh, whatever we, um, uh, we stick into the ground goes into the water table, uh, so much of what we consume is going to come back to us through water. Uh, so it starts with us. We need to, to consume fewer of the things that are... Uh, are um, you know, are going to be dangerous to our health. Uh, and um, uh, at the same time, uh, we also need to be really uh, active politically. Uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, talking to the people that we elect to say that this is a real priority for us. Part of the reason I highlight the ways in which we forget about water is that we have forgotten about it. We don't realize how important it is for us. We don't, we're not as active as we probably should be uh, in requiring that the water we get is, uh, is, is, is going to be healthy. And it's expensive to maintain the systems that we have. 
that, you know, that's for sure. The other thing I would just highlight is I, I think most people who, you know, own a house or whatever, you know, we often get sent a report about the status of our water, what's being cleaned, you know, what are the chemicals that are being taken out, what are the, all these sorts of things. Most people don't read them. Uh, and you should, you should go see what is your, uh, what is your, uh, your municipal water system doing uh, to, to protect in that way. Uh, and, and then to demand, you know, as, as voters and taxpayers, uh, some kind of change. I mean, these are, as with everything, it all begins with us uh, in terms of making those kinds of changes. Um, we got a question about booze, always fun, a question about beer and alcohol. And the question is, basically, you know, is it true that back in the day, uh, so to speak, alcohol was the safest thing to drink? And when did that change? You know, when did people's, um, you know, perception that drinking alcohol is a good way to stay safe from all the germs and stuff and unclean water? Uh, when did that that kind of idea um, take hold? And when did it change? Well, and the amazing thing, because I think mo I, I assume the most of us are, are sort of like me, where, you know, I, I drink a lot of water, I follow the uh, the guidelines that I should be, uh, be should be hydrating all the time. Uh, and it seems pretty natural, right, that we would want this. Uh, the short answer is that it really begins uh, about 150 years ago. Uh, and uh, where we start to really see uh, with with the bacteriological revolution, where we started to understand what caused disease, that there were these things, uh, bacteria or um, or you know or viruses, invisible to the human eye, but that were causing disease for us, and that we could, through a series of filtering systems or other types of uh, of cleaning processes, we could take those out and suddenly make the water uh, much safer to drink than it had been uh, before. Uh, and but it's really only in the uh, the big you know, the uh, the middle part of the 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century, that we start to see these changes really coming in and, and a shift in terms of thinking about whether water is safe to drink uh, or not. Because for most of human history, humans saw water as dangerous, uh, ultimately. Uh, and so, you know, in Roman society, for example, just going back, you know, a couple thousand years, um, you know, water was drunk by people sort of lower on the social hierarchy. So slaves drank water, children drank water, women uh, sometimes drank water, but people who were better off, people who were citizens, uh, they would take their liquids in uh, through things like wine uh, or other types of liquid that had been transformed somehow, heated, fermented, uh, or, um, uh, or otherwise, or sometimes cooled too, that they would approach it in that way. So it's a very recent type of occurrence, and it's unusual for humans to have this kind of sense of water as being really, you know, uh, welcoming, and that we should be, you know, guzzling it rather than be scared of it. That's great. Um, I'm going to send two questions your way. One is, it seems very small, but uh, maybe you can answer it. Uh, Mary uh, Barbara Alexander asks, "What are the Japanese fish fish hooks made out of that you mentioned?" And then Neil Humphrey, uh, graduate student, shout out here in our environmental history program, asks a more a broad question. What are some of the most prominent ecological issues with transforming meandering rivers into clear, straight, navigable waterways? I think that's a great question, Neil. Um, so uh, fish hooks, my apologies. I don't know for sure. Most fish hooks historically were made either from some kind of, usually from uh, fish bone of some sort or or sea mammal kind of bone uh, and occasionally from uh, you know wood or other kinds of products from the land but often taking uh, the bones of other animals I'm not sure about those Japanese ones in particular uh, so I can't be 100% sure but usually from uh, from those other sources uh, historically um, and to ask the question about you know transforming rivers, uh, the ecological trans, uh, impacts are 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 significant. So, um, the a meandering river and one in which changes course and direction, uh, in which there's kind of shallows and deep parts and and is kind of messy, uh, are often very rich uh, uh, ecosystems. Uh, so that you're gonna have a wide range of different types of species. Uh, that can live because you've got some parts of the river that are moving fast, some parts of the river that are moving quite slowly. You have shallow parts, you have deep parts, uh, you have different kinds of little micro ecosystems in the different parts of the river. So the result of which is that when you straighten a river, 
uh, biodiversity de uh, decreases quite rapidly. There's a whole set of species that simply can't exist anymore uh, in the areas uh, that have been transformed. So remarkable shrink, uh, shrink in biodiversity and a shift in terms of the species that can or cannot live in the river. Uh, so that there were, you know, there's a species of fish in the Rhine, and I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's, uh, there's a large number of species of fish in the river that were in the Rhine that don't exist anymore. They just simply can't handle, uh, they can't spawn or they can't live uh, in the new kind of system uh, that's there. Uh, so that it's a fundamental transformation of, uh, of, you know, of, the, of the ecosystem. Uh, the other thing I would just highlight is, is that when you straighten rivers, you have an impact kind of on the whole geological structure of the, of the river uh, itself. So that when you turn rivers that meander into straight lines uh, and uh, and uh, with defined shores, uh, you um, uh, you often increase the velocity. Uh, so that rather than meandering, it's going straight through. The, the faster the water moves, the more likely it is to um, to erode the bottom. Uh, it picks up all sorts of so uh, sediment with it. It then moves it down the river. Uh, and uh, so in the Rhine case, for example, you now have sediment that was at the very top of the Rhine, uh, you know, in Germany or Switzerland or this sort of thing, uh, that is now coming out at the very bottom of the Rhine into the Netherlands, uh, clogging up their river system uh, and affecting those areas as well. So that you have a you have, you know, changes in species life, but also changes in the uh, in, in the movement of, uh, of sediment and soil. Um, That's that's great. I'd mentioned too that in the United States there are over seventy-five thousand dams over three feet tall in the United States. Essentially, if you looked at a map of the country, you have congestive heart failure in terms of blocking the flow of nutrients to waterways further downstream. So, a big issue there. Um, I'm going to put again two questions your way because they're kind of connected. Um, there's a, a person who asks, is it bad for the earth to pump water from aquifers? That is, would it cause, does it cause problems for the planet such as earthquakes? I think that's a great question. And kind of related, is it possible for modern societies to collapse under water stress or scarcity the way um, that, uh, the way uh, many ancient societies have? Are we still vulnerable or are we more resilient now to mega droughts and, and, uh, uh, be and because of mismanagement? Um. So I'll do this, the second question first. I mean, in terms of the, you know, could modern societies collapse? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, we are a species that requires water to exist. Uh, and, and depending on how we've set up our, our, our lives and, you know, depending on what we grow for our food uh, and how we use water, you know, for economic activities uh, and for other and domestic activities or whatever, um, the amount of water we need as a society varies from place to place. Um, and it's, it's worth noting that it's still the case that 70, 70 plus percent of the water that we use uh, is water for food, uh, for agriculture. Uh, so that you know, most of the time when we think about water, we think about the water that's coming out of our tap to drink or, uh, or you know, for, uh, for showering or whatever. Uh, but our real water usage is always in food. Uh, and that's the that's one of the real uh, perils to us uh, that you know if there's no water then there's no food uh, and and that's that's in some ways the long term type of danger now so that in the sense that it is still possible absolutely for societies to collapse in this way um, and again because we have to have these four things we need a certain amount of water for the types of economic uh, and kind of uh, domestic activities it has to be of a certain quality. I mean, if it shows up as salt water or with poisons in it or whatever, we can't use it. It has to come at a specific time. Water's no good uh, for crops if it comes at the wrong time. Uh, and it has to come in a specific location. If my crops are here, it doesn't do me any good for it to rain over there. Uh, so that fundamental problem remains for us. We have, though, as a species, done amazing things to kind of uh, to be able to mitigate some of those problems. We'll never will never be um, free from uh, this disjuncture. We'll never be free from the fact that we need water to survive. But our ability to store water, for example, our ability to move water from one place to another, uh, and uh, our ability to drill water up from under the ground uh, has made it possible for us uh, to 
to sort of to to smooth out some of the rough edges of that whole process. So we're able to live more and more without having to think about water because of these kinds of technological structures. The caveat to that, of course, is that the more things work well in a society, the more we see the population rising, the more we see populations rising uh, and you know, populations need food. So the more populations rise, the more food we need that the, our ability through technology to be able to uh, bring water to where we need it at the right quality and the right time and all these sorts of things uh, is now starting to be balanced by the fact that our population is rising so quickly and greatly that if it, we came to a point where we ran out of water uh, or became too little to be able to produce our food, uh, then uh, we would have a lot of people uh, affected. Um, you know, for food, it does help that we can move food in a way that people 5,000 years ago, even 300 years ago, couldn't. We have transportation global kind of networks in that way to make these things happen. Um, so very much still possible, and we should be always on the, the concerned about that. Um, but, you know, there are these mitigating factors that we, that we see in action. Um, I was asked about kind of pumping groundwater out. Uh, you know, the the biggest issue uh, in that regard is uh, is a human one. There are geological, and I'll talk about that in just a sec, but the human one is this, that we have big chunks of our agricultural economy in the United States and globally that are based upon um, aquifer water, that are based upon pumping out water from the ground. This water that is in the ground um, generally re uh, replenishes itself very slowly over the course of thousands uh, if not tens of thousands of years. Uh, and so we're taking out much more water than we'll ever go back in. So that these the aquifers underground are finite resources. Uh, and in that regard, uh, we're only going to be able to support uh, agriculture based upon aquifer water for so long. At some point, it runs out. Uh, at the same time, sometimes the water that gets pulled up from the aquifers um, is, is not healthy. Uh, there was a huge arsenic poisoning uh, uh, kind of epidemic uh, in uh, in Asia. The um, the UN had put together a process of drilling wells to bring water up under the ground, and it turned out. And they didn't bother to test the water when it got up there. Uh, this water was was uh, had high concentrations of arsenic. They didn't realize until too late. Uh, there's an entire generation of people who've been poisoned by this arsenic, uh, and so that you know the water we bring up isn't necessarily pristine. Uh, it is in some cases, in, in other cases not. So aquifer water is finite. We can only use it for so long. And of course, when it stops, all of that agricultural uh, infrastructure and economy is going to stop with it. There's no, there's nothing to replace that. Plus the kind of health issue. In terms of kind of geological kinds of questions, uh, it is possible. You know, as you take the water out, um, I mean, the water is supports land in certain places. So as you take the water out, that affects uh, the structural integrity of many of these kinds of caverns and caves. Uh, so, for example, um, in um, in California at the moment, in the Central Valley, the land is subsiding. It's going down and substantially. You can see it happening. Uh, and. Uh, uh, and because they're pumping up vast amounts of water from under the ground, I mean, the drought over the uh, over the last uh, decade plus uh, out in California has led to a tremendous amount of pumping from underground. The result is the land is subsiding, uh, and we see that in a variety of places uh, around the world. Uh, so you kind of see the subs uh, the subsidence of land, uh, and because nothing's holding it up anymore. Uh, and occasionally, right, that can lead to uh, instability uh, on uh, on the ground. Now. Earthquake may be too strong a word, but you can you can have uh, shaking as a result as land subsides and uh, and and uh, uh, and kind of collapses in various forms. Um, we're at time, but I, I hope okay it's okay to to address these last two questions here because I think they really matter, Nick. And if we lose some folks, that's okay. We'll, we'll record this, but you know, one question is one that's on everyone's mind: Is desalination the way out? especially given that renewable energy, you know, is making this more cost affordable? Or, you know, do are we going to face instead of a water scarcity issue, an energy scarcity issue of being able to power these desal plants? Can you can you muse on desal as the solution? And then um, I think this other question is just is really important too. like, uh, as a paddler, a cubic feet per second is another thing I'd throw in. The question from Forrest is, 
you know, there's all these different types of ways we measure water, but none of them really make sense to any of us. Billions of liter feet, meters of water equivalent, like gigatons. What does that mean? So how do, is, is, it, is part of this a translation issue of dealing with the scale of all of this? Um, if you could muse on those two things and then we'll conclude. Okay. Um, so desalination or desalinization, uh, this is, uh, this is an interesting question. I get asked this, uh, this a great deal. Uh, I, you know, obviously we have the technology at the moment to be able to take um, the, to separate salt from, uh, uh, from water. Uh, and, um, uh, and the problem with it is that as the, as the technology currently exists, uh, it is tremendously expensive and tremendously uh, energy intensive. Uh, so, that, uh, so that, yes, we can do it, uh, but the cost is so great that it doesn't make sense uh, for, particularly for agriculture. Uh, you know, if you're growing grain, you know, for bread or you're growing corn for livestock feed, uh, if you're using desalinated water, uh, your feed's going to be just simply so expensive that it's even hard to imagine uh, at this point, given the, the way that the technology is uh, at, uh, at this stage. So that um, it can provide a small amount of additional uh, assistance in specific places, particularly for drinking water. Uh, and, and that's where, where it can be used and where it is being used. I mean, for drinking water, uh, for cleaning, for domestic types of activities, uh, it's super expensive still uh, and, uh, uh, and very energy intensive, but uh, it can be used in, in, in that regard. So at, at this point, it's not a solution to these kinds of questions uh, because we can't do, we can't produce food with it yet uh, in a way that makes any, any sense whatsoever. The other problem, of course, with desalination is uh, that you have leftover byproducts. Uh, I mean, you're, you are extracting salts and, uh, from, from the water. Where does all that brine go? Uh, you know, you can only can only extract so much. You've got you've got a waste product that you then have to deal with. And salt is, you know, salt kills the land. Uh, you you can't make the oceans too much saltier than they are. Otherwise, it starts to affect the species that are there. So you have a a, a this this the the, the byproduct issue uh, that we have with so many things that are also going to be there. So a massive scale kind of desalinization process. Uh, I don't see uh, happening anytime soon, uh, just because of these these two really big problems uh, and 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 issues with it. Um, the um, and uh, so then just a question of scale. I mean, I I, I do think that it's uh, you know at least in the United States. I mean, I think that part of the issue uh, that we have is, I mean, it, it is a scale issue in the sense that we do, we live on this blue planet with all of this incredible amount of water, uh, whether it's salt water or fresh water. Uh, we have, um, you know, we have frozen water in, in the forms of glaciers uh, all over the place. Uh, you know, there's so much kind of just seemingly this, this abundance. I mean, you look at the picture behind me, it doesn't look like we have a problem when you look at Lake Tahoe like that. It looks, you know, pretty magical, right? Uh, and, uh, and and yet it's hard for us to kind of come to terms with uh, the the issues that actually it's not about all of it. It's about the amount that we can use, and it's about having water. You know, again, it's the four things: uh, quantity, quality, location, and timing. This beautiful water in, in Lake Tahoe does very little for me in um, in Ohio. Uh, it might be able to grow some crops that you could move over, uh, but. Uh, but the, the sort of distance is, uh, is, is so great. So that we can have lots of water, but it's not always in the right place of the right quality and, the, and, uh, and uh, in the right quantity uh, or the right timing for, uh, for what we need. Um, I also think that you know, part of it is, it, so part of it is our inability to kind of really conceive of having a lot, but also having very little at the, very, at the same time. And, and that graph that I showed of all the water coming down to that sort of, you know, 50% of a 1% of a 3% tiny amount that we can actually use. The second problem is the one that goes to my question that I started with, what's your relationship to water? Uh, in the sense that at least in the United States, we've gotten to the point where uh, we take water for granted. We don't think about it. So it's not even, uh, it's just there. Uh, so that we haven't paid attention to how important water is uh, in our lives. We haven't prioritized it uh, locally. Uh, we don't give thanks when we turn on the tap and water comes out, and we should because 
you know, for most humans, that hasn't happened uh, and didn't happen historically. And, and we have this, this just miraculous kind of thing that we can open a tap and that it's not going to kill us, the stuff that comes out. Uh, so we've forgotten how important it is to, to us as a species in the process so that, you know, coming to terms with what's going on requires us to go back to our roots uh, as as humans and as a species to realize how important this is, to prioritize water questions uh, and uh, in our politics and our economics and everything that we do, uh, and to be you know, aware every day of, uh, of the importance of water in our lives. Well, here, here. Thank you so much, Nick. And thank you all very much for joining us today and for your excellent questions. This was really a delight for me just moderating this. I'm grateful to Nick Breifogel for sharing his expertise and passion on water history. This has just been great. Please join me in giving me a virtual round of applause. And uh, we would also like to thank the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Alex um, Stacklane, the Department of History, the uh, Goldberg Center, and Origins Current Events and Historical Perspective for their support. Stay safe and healthy. Drink clean water out there. And see you next time. Goodbye. Thank you.